0: The title for today's sermon is God and Government, and it raises the question of to whom do we pledge our allegiance, and it addresses the issue of how we as Christians are to live in a secular society, which is a challenging question, is it not? But before we dive in to that issue and to this text, let me reset the scene. This is the Wednesday of Holy Week. It is just days before Jesus is put to death on the cross. And on this particular day, Jesus will have five confrontations, each dealing with a different question. And so if we break them down this one day, Wednesday, the five confrontations, each of them deals with a different question. The first one we've already covered was the question of his authority and was asked by the Sanhedrin. Second question, paying taxes, asked by the Pharisees and the Herodians. Number three, the question of the resurrection, we'll cover that next week, asked by the Sadducees. Four, the question of the greatest command, and that is asked by the scribes. And lastly, the question of whose, is the son, whose son is the Christ, and Jesus himself will ask that question. And so, as you can see, we're on number two of those five. Now, with that in mind, would you please stand with me as I read the text? Mark twelve, thirteen through 17. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray together. Father, this um, text is certainly relevant. It certainly hits home when we wrestle with these questions of how we are as believers, as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, how are we to live as citizens here on earth? And God, I know we can have some passionate opinions about those things. God, help us to set aside our passionate opinions and to open our ears and our hearts to truth and to live accordingly. And so speak to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the outline for today looks something like this. We're going to start with the trap that the Herodians and Pharisees are attempting to lay for Jesus. And we'll talk about the parties, the pretense, and the plot underneath that section known as the trap. And then we're going to look at the truth that Jesus presents um, dealing with ultimate authority and then also delegated authority. And so let's begin with that first section, which is the trap in verses 13 through 14, and its first subpoint, which is the parties, asking the question who were these main players in our text today? Uh, we meet them in verse 13, where it says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So the players are Pharisees and Herodians. Let's talk for a moment about who these groups are, because they certainly help us to understand what is happening here. First, the Pharisees. That name comes up a lot, doesn't it? Uh, The Pharisees were religious, they were conservative, and they were very much anti-Rome. Uh, Their name literally means separation, and so these were the people who took great pride in separating themselves from all others who did not adhere to the law of Moses the way that they thought they should adhere to the law of Moses. And so these are the Pharisees, religious, conservative, anti-Rome separatists. Next were the Herodians, and they're pretty much the opposite. The Herodians were secular. They were liberal and they were pro-Rome. And so you can see that these groups were really as different as night is from day. They genuinely hated each other, much like wolverines and buckeyes, right? (laughs) But on this occasion, they came together for a common cause, and that cause is that they hate Jesus. Now, it's important for us to ask the question, why do they hate him? Well, the Pharisees hated Jesus because they viewed him as a threat to their self-righteous religion. Jesus came and he really kind of systematically dismantled so much of what they taught and which, what they believed because it was so much based on self-righteousness. And Jesus was quick to point out there is no way that self-righteousness is going to allow you to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is only by the righteousness of Jesus. And so the Pharisees were determined to kill him because of this. But here was the, the problem for the Pharisees. Being under Roman rule, they themselves did not have the power of execution. They did not have the power of execution. So for that, they would need to convince the Romans somehow that this was necessary and get them to do it. And so thus, their intended partnership with the Herodians. So the Herodians hated Jesus because they viewed him as a threat to their political power. Jesus was, after all, referred to as the King of Kings and the King of the Jews Claiming to have his own kingdom, and such talk sounded like that of a political revolutionary, doesn't it? But for the Romans to remove Jesus now would be a terrible PR maneuver. Why? Because the Jews were so um, Jesus was so popular with the Jews, and so thus they would need to change the hearts of the Jews by way of the Pharisees, and so this really interesting partnership. Form between two unlikely parties, fulfilling the old saying, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That was, in fact, what was happening here because for both the Pharisees and the Herodians, Jesus was their enemy for different reasons. And so they collaborate, they make a plan to trap Jesus. That word trap. Um, comes from the Greek agruo, which literally means to ensnare a bird or hook a fish, which is precisely what the Pharisees and Herodians hope to do as they come together. Um, they trap Jesus like a bird or a fish, ultimately to have him killed. So those are the parties in the conflict, the Herodians and the Pharisees. And next in our outline, we have the pretense. The pretense. Look with me at the first part of verse 14. I'm going to read this with some dramatic effect, okay? And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Sounds genuine, right? From deep within their hearts? Not at all. What they're doing is they're laying it on thick, baiting their trap with flattery. And that word flattery I think is a good little bunny trail for us to take for a moment. Flattery refers to excessive or insincere praise given to further one's own interests. Ever had somebody try to flatter you and your spidey senses just kind of go off and say, hmm, what do they want? Um, Now with that being said, There's an interesting inverse relationship between flattery and gossip. I found this to be really helpful. Gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his face. But flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind his back. Isn't that interesting? And so true? I believe as a church, as a body, as a family, we must beware of both the sins of flattery and gossip. Both are toxic. Both have a way of tearing relationships apart. They are poison that do great harm to the body of Christ. May the Holy Spirit bring conviction to us when we are guilty of both flattery and gossip. End of bunny trail. <clears throat> Why? Why? Were the Pharisees and Herodians using flattery with Jesus? What was their intended goal of using this flattery? Two reasons, really. Number one was an attempt to get the Jews on their side. Remember that Jesus was at this point popular with the Jews. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We just had Palm Sunday a few days ago, the tr- not so triumphal entry as he came in, but the crowds were stirred. They thought, perhaps this really is the Messiah after all, come to Jerusalem. So there was an attempt by saying all these nice things about Jesus, using this flattery to get him on, them on their side. But number two, it was also an attempt to appeal to the ego of Jesus. That's what flattery is all about, right? You appeal to a person's ego to try to get them to do what you want them to do. And in this case, they want Jesus to respond. They want Jesus to bite their hook and so get trapped. Now, what is truly ironic here is that the Pharisees and the Herodians believed nothing that they said about Jesus, but it was all true, wasn't it? Jesus really was teacher. He really was true. He really did not care about anyone's opinion. He really was not swayed by appearance. And he truly did teach the way of God. And so these imposters declared far more than they knew. So those are the parties. We've looked at the pretense and the flattery that they attempted to use to trap Jesus. Now let's look at the plot. What was, what was really the plan that they hatched to trap Jesus? Look with me at the second half of verse 14. They say, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Nothing like the subject of taxes to stir up controversy, right? It's a hot button today. It was a hot button then. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Now, this was especially a hot button for the Jews, and here's why. The Romans had ruled over them, had ruled over Jerusalem since about 63 B.C. And so during that time period in various levels, um, there was the requirement for Jews to pay at least three different kinds of taxes. Um, Number one, there was something called a ground tax. Everything that came from the ground. 10% of all grain and 20% of all wine and fruit. And now, in an agrarian society where they did a lot of farming... That was a big deal. On top of that was, number two, income tax, which was 1% of a man's income. I believe a man's income defined by being either a soldier or some kind of laborer. And then finally, there was the tax that's really in question today, which is the poll or census tax. It was the head tax, if you will. Essentially, the Jews had to pay a tax for the privilege of being subservient to the Romans that also implied that Caesar owned them and not God. And it was this controversial poll or census or head tax that is the issue of our tax text text today. Now, on top of that, if you'll remember, there was also the corruption of the tax collectors that inflated these taxes even more. And so when you put all of these ingredients together, the Jews were heavily and oppressively taxed. And you can imagine... This did not sit well with them. So much so that in AD 6, so would have been sometime during Jesus' childhood a man named Judas of Galilee. Now, this is not um, uh, the Judas that we talked about in the intertestamental period who led a different revolt. I don't know why it's always a Judas who leads one of the revolts, but here we have Judas of Galilee, who was the founder of the Zealots. You've probably heard that name before. We have um, a Zealot, actually, that becomes a disciple of Jesus. Um, Judas of Galilee led a revolt, basically, over the issue of these taxes. The revolt was crushed by the Romans and Judas was killed, but the bitterness over the taxes remained. Now, why would the Pharisees and Herodians use the question of taxes as a potential trap for Jesus? Well, here's why. If Jesus says, in answer to their question, not to pay taxes, then the Romans will turn against him in a hurry. Why? Because it will appear that Jesus is raising up an insurrection against the Roman government, just like Judas of Galilee did years ago. So this was something to which the Romans were very hypersensitive. They wanted more than anything to keep peace and to squash rebellion. And they were especially hypersensitive to this during this particular time period. Why? What was going on this week? Passover. And so Jerusalem is filled with Jewish pilgrims. If there was ever a climate that was ripe for Jewish revolution, it was this week and this place and this time. So if there's any sense that Jesus was teaching that the taxes should be boycotted, they would certainly appear as a form of rebellion against Rome. He would be arrested and then likely put to death for treason. So, That doesn't seem like a good option for Jesus, right? If Jesus says not to pay the taxes, then the Romans will turn against him. However, if Jesus says to pay the taxes, then the Jews will turn against him. Why? Well, again, because of their bitterness over the taxes, taxes which supported their oppressors and symbolized their subjection, and also they were used to finance pagan temples, Clearly, the Pharisees, who were the separatists, were not in support of this. And after all, isn't the Messiah supposed to come and bring deliverance from Rome and not more taxes? Either way, it would appear that Jesus has, in fact, fallen into this trap set by the Herodians and by the Pharisees. It seems like the classic catch-22 scenario, but is it? This brings us to the next main section of the outline, which is the truth. We'll see how Jesus operates in the midst of this trap. Um, The scriptures teach us, right, that the truth will set us free. And so here Jesus uses truth to free himself from this trap the first truth that Jesus teaches and has been teaching all along throughout his ministry is a lesson in ultimate authority. It seems like this is coming up a lot in these days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. A lesson in ultimate authority. If you remember from two weeks ago in the sermon when Jesus was asked, by what authority are you doing these things? We were reminded that there is no authority higher than Jesus as it says in Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, every bit of it, belongs to him. And then in Ephesians 1, 21, it says that, Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So it just keeps reinforcing, hammering home this truth that Jesus is the ultimate authority, which would seem to answer the question about taxes, right? Especially taxes that were used for immoral purposes. Surely Jesus would say that his followers are exempt from paying such taxes to an immoral and oppressive government, and that their only responsibility is to his kingdom and his ultimate authority. That would seem to be the answer, right? But not so fast. Because while Jesus is the ultimate authority, he has also chosen to accomplish his purpose here on earth, through delegated authority. And that is the second subpoint under the truth. Jesus has planned to accomplish his purposes here on earth through delegated authority. And specifically, God has chosen to accomplish his purposes on earth by delegating his authority to the church, to the family, and to the government. Now, for our purposes today, we're going to focus on God's delegated authority to the government. As it says in Romans 13, 1 through 2, listen carefully, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This passage teaches that it is God. Who ultimately establishes governments and that he accomplishes his purposes through them. That's a hard truth, isn't it? Especially to our northern Michigan sensibilities, right? Especially when governments act in ungodly ways. But based on this text and others that we're gonna look at, it is undeniable. So watch how Jesus applies this truth in verse 15 as he gives his answer to the Pharisees and the Herodians regarding the taxes. Um, Verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, a denarius was a coin in that time. That represented one day's wages, the same amount as that poll or census tax. And on one side of the coin was the image of the current emperor, which at this point would have been Tiberius Caesar. And listen to the inscription that it also contained. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, the son of the divine Augustus. Now when you put those pieces together, he's making what declaration? He is the son of god and then on the other side of the coin it read pontifus maximus which means chief priest so you can certainly see why the jews were repulsed both by the tax and by the payment of the tax with the denarius it symbolized subjection idolatry and even blasphemy So certainly, Jesus is going to say that his people are exempt from this immoral tax by the Roman government, right? But actually, he says the opposite in verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So the Pharisees and Herodians thought that they had put Jesus in an either-or situation, but in reality to Jesus, it's a both-and situation. You see, God's people have a type of dual citizenship. We are first and foremost citizens of heaven. But while we're here on earth, we are also citizens on earth. And one of the things we see about being followers of Jesus is that when we follow Jesus, we always do things at the highest level, don't we? And that even includes our citizenship. And so, in finding ourselves living under God's delegated authority to human government, Jesus says that we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That word render is an interesting one. In the Greek, it's apodidomai, literally means to repay a debt to repay a debt. Now, what debt could the Jews possibly owe the Romans? Well, when you think about it, there was quite a bit actually. The Romans had built an extensive road system. Now, one of the beautiful things about when Jesus came and when the early church started and when the apostle Paul showed up and when missionaries were sent out was that it was at this time that the Romans had built all these roads And so the gospel was able to spread like never before, um, and the Romans, the pagan Romans, built the the, the system for that to be able to happen. But the Romans had built an extensive road system. The, The Romans provided a certain level of civil order and protection, peace, the Pax Romana, a season of peace. The Romans provided a water system as well as a functioning economy. All of these things were utilized by the Jews, and therefore represented a debt that they owed to Caesar. We can relate to that, can't we? There's much that the government provides that we take advantage of. We also owe a debt. So this is why Romans 13 reads the way it does. Let me read all seven verses for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, verse 5, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, this, this, this text could be its own sermon series, right? But for now, it's enough to highlight the role of government as a form of God's delegated authority here on earth in ways that I don't completely understand. We can do a lot of the what-ifs and what-abouts as we look at history, but um, my Bible tells me my God is sovereign, my God accomplishes all things according to his purposes, even the things we don't understand, even the things that like, make us scratch our heads and say, "I don't, God, I don't understand, but he has his ways that are higher than our ways. And in light of this, we should pay our taxes even when the government does things with which we do not agree or are even immoral. Do you think the Roman government led by the emperor in Jesus' day was immoral? 100% he was. Even so, Jesus instructed his followers to be exceptional citizens and to pay their taxes. Even Peter, it's, it's interesting, we're going to see um, Jesus said this, Peter said this, the Apostle Paul said this, I, I think they sensed that this would be a needed repetition. Peter reinforced it in 1 Peter two thirteen through 17. He says, Honor the emperor. Don't worship him, because he's not God, no matter what he says. But because he has been put in place by God for reasons that we don't understand, he is worthy of honor. Now, in our context, honor the president, honor the governor, even when they're doing things with which we don't agree and may be immoral. Yet God has placed them there for reasons known to him. What a hard teaching this is. And yet it is the teaching of Jesus. It is the teaching of the Apostle Paul. It is the teaching of the Apostle Peter. Now listen to this. Even though Paul and Peter were persecuted, imprisoned, and then executed by the very emperor that they told others to honor. Think about that. Now I'm sure that like me, you have all kinds of practical questions about how we are to apply this, and there's no way we can cover all of them today, but let's, let's do shift into application. How should we then live? Um, two simple points of application this morning. Number one, submit fully to the ultimate authority. Submit fully to the ultimate authority. Now, why is this important? There's both a theological reason for this and a practical reason for our submission to God as the authority in our lives. First, the theological reason, which is this, and it's, it's such a cool point of connection with our text today. God's image is stamped on us. Genesis 1 tells us that we are created, how? In God's Image. Now check this out. Just like the image of Caesar was stamped on the coin signifying his authority over his people, so God's image is stamped on us signifying his authority over his people. Isn't that beautiful? Therefore, what we owe God goes way beyond what we owe Caesar. We owe Caesar some taxes, whatever. But what do we owe God? Our very lives. Caesar's image was stamped on the coin, so you give the coin back to Caesar. God's image is stamped on us, and so we give our lives back to God. We owe him, we render to him our very lives. We are to render to him ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing in his sight, loving him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. This is the theological reason that we are to submit ourselves fully to God as our ultimate authority because his image is stamped on us. But there is also a practical reason. And the practical reason is this. Our lives only work when we're living in submission to God's ultimate authority. Our lives only work when we are living in submission to God's ultimate authority. And, um, James 4.7 says it very plainly. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, then you're able to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Uh, Submitting ourselves to God is the key to living a victorious, fulfilled, and fruitful life. We can go back to the whole image of the, the vine and the branches and bearing fruit and living an abundant, compelling, fulfilled life. Being connected to the vine Jesus, which comes through our submission to him, is the key. But when we resist that, when we resist submitting to God as the ultimate authority in our lives, man, there's some tragic consequences, We forfeit His presence. We forfeit His peace. And we forfeit His power. And then we become like the Israelite nation that we've been talking about, fruitless. When we forfeit His presence, His peace, and His power, we're on our own. Frail, weak, vulnerable, And distressed. And so, in that state, we are easily overcome by the enemy. Which is why, when we go back to this verse, James 4 7, it says that step one, submit yourselves to God. Then, step two, then you are able to resist the devil and he will flee from you. It all begins theologically and practically with submitting to God fully as the ultimate authority. In our lives. And so I ask you the question today is that you? Are you fully submitted? Not holding certain things back, not saying that's mine, because it's all God's, isn't it? But an important component to fully submitting to God as the ultimate authority is we are to submit as fully as possible to government authority. If you're going to do number one, part of number one is number two, which is submitting as fully as possible to government authority. And I put as fully as possible in italics because there may very well be times, especially in the the days to come, when the rule of government contradicts the rule of God. And the government orders us to do things that are contrary to Scripture. In such cases, what do we do? We are obligated to disobey. When the government orders us to do things that are contrary to Scripture, in such cases we are obligated to disobey the government and to obey God. But please note this, listen carefully. These instances will be dictated by the clear command of Scripture and not by our own personal preferences. You better be able to give chapter and verse... If you come to a place where you're saying, well, I'm disobeying the government because this goes against what God's clear command is, you better be able to give chapter and verse, verses, I just don't want to. We must never try to spiritualize our civil disobedience when it's really just about our dislike of the government. Let me say that again. We must never try to spiritualize our civil disobedience when it's really just about our dislike of the government. So, how should we then live? And again, I think this is probably going to give you lots to talk about at lunch today and in connect groups. Number one, submit fully to the ultimate authority. It all begins there. It all begins there. But number two, submit as fully as possible to government authority, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we question, even when we don't like it, Why? Because God has instituted that authority for reasons known sometimes only to Him, but to accomplish His purpose and plans here on earth, which is all accelerating to a grand conclusion, isn't it? The day when Jesus will return and there will be a government that will always be righteous, that will always be good, that will always be holy. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I think this is an area where Satan would love to get a foothold in our lives and to cause us to develop a certain bitterness about government, a certain bitterness about society, about our leaders. And God, while it is readily admitted that so many of our leaders are far from you and are governing in ways that do not represent the values of the kingdom of God, God, you've challenged us to not do what is natural. What is natural is for us to be bitter. But God, you you have challenged us to live supernaturally by the power of your Spirit and to submit ourselves as fully as possible to the governing authorities that have been established by you. So God, I pray that you would help us to be, as your followers, the best of citizens. May we be engaged in our culture, engaged in our governments, engaged in its processes. But God, I pray that we would not be those who are known for that bitterness against government and leaders. May we be known far more for what we are for, which is Jesus, and not for what we're against. May you make it so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.